And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's word. Our denomination uh, has an assessment process uh, for ministry couples going into uh, church planning ministry. About two years ago, Becky and I attended a a four-day intensive assessment process uh, that's put on by our denomination. If we had not gotten through that assessment process, we would not be here with you today uh, planting a new church. It's a pretty intense situation. So Becky and I are participating in this four-day process um, with other people, and on the last day, the second-to-last day of the assessment process, our assessors paired us up into, into groups of eight. Uh, they put couples into groups of four. Uh, so it was four pastors and their wives in each group. The assessors took Becky and I and three other ministry couples and put us in a room. And they said, we want you to stay in here for about four hours. Yeah, we can get up and go to the restroom and stuff like that. But they said, we want you to stay here for the rest of the day. We want you to plan uh, a church plan, a startup church. We're going to give you a major metropolitan area in the country. We're going to give you the demographics, the location, uh, everything you need to know about this area of the country. And we want the eight of you to come up with a ministry plan for starting a new church in that area. We want a full-blown ministry plan. We want a full-blown budget. And we want you to choose from among the eight of you who will be the pastor. 
Now, th- this wasn't a real scenario, uh, but the denomination was interested in planting a church in the very place uh, that, that we had to study. And they said, we're going to evaluate your presentation. You're going to present to us at the end of this day your plan, your budget, your idea for how a church can start in that part of the country. We're going to evaluate your presentation together. You're going to evaluate one another on how you do as a team over the next few hours. And your overall, your overall evaluation for today will, will largely impact uh, your, our assessment of you for the entire week. So the stakes were kind of big. We're all wondering, are they going to give us a thumbs up or a thumbs down um, when we go home, before we go home? So we're in this room with, with three other couples, four pastors and their wives, and we begin working together. And in about five minutes, a power struggle erupted and absolute chaos uh, uh, began to take place. Within five minutes... We saw pastors, right, people in ministry, arguing with one another who, over who was more equipped to start a church in that city. Um, people bragging about their abilities, about their skills, about their spiritual gifts, about their life experiences, insulting and criticizing one another, wives defending their husbands. It, it turned into absolute relational and social chaos. We eventually found our way together, and we, we made it work. And we got out of that room alive after a few hours. And I still stay in contact with a couple of the people in that room. But when we told the assessors later how difficult it was for us to start the process, they told us that years before, uh, two pastors actually got into a fist fight. Uh, during this process, and they walked in into the room, and they found these two guys wrestling on the top of a table while everybody else was watching it take place. We didn't quite descend to that level. I I was grateful for that. What people will do when desperation meets opportunity. Jesus says something important in this passage about leadership and authority and influence within God's economy. What we discover in this passage is that the greatest leader in the kingdom of God is the greatest servant. And as we begin to think about leadership and influence and authority, we have to ask ourselves today, how does the world do it? How does God see it? And what solution does he provide out of the chaos uh, that I just described? I want to talk about the way of the world regarding these matters. I want to talk about the way of God's kingdom And I want to talk about the way of the cross, the way of the world, the way of the kingdom, and the way of the cross. The way of the world is basically this, dominance. People seek to dominate one another in order to accomplish what they want to accomplish, in order to achieve progress, even in order to achieve good things like justice and generosity. People will tend to dominate one another in a variety of ways, and you see it in the disciples, in James and John, and in the other ten as well. The, t- the tension is beginning to build now in Jesus' ministry. The Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 9, records this point, this juncture of Jesus' ministry where he is deciding it's time to go to Jerusalem and minister in Jerusalem. This is, this is like the third act of John's Gospel. 
What Luke's gospel tells us is that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem at this point. And in the Greek, what that meant was Jesus strengthened his face toward Jerusalem. His demeanor was beginning to change. His resolve increased and deepened and hardened, and the disciples began to see it. And now this is the third time that Jesus has said to them, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and, and all these terrible things are going to happen. Right? The, chief, the, the chief priests, the scribes, they were in Jerusalem. They were part of the Sanhedrin. And now the, the disciples, we are told in verse 32, are amazed and afraid because they see that he's going to go through with it. He's going to walk into the lion's mouth. He's going to go right to the place that he's been saying all along is going to be a living hell for him. And they just can't believe it. And so they're frightened. Now, it's in that context. It's, it's in the midst of that tension and uncertainty and, and, the, and confusion for the disciples that the Zebedee boys, the Thunder brothers, uh, Jesus called them the sons of thunder, James and John decide to make an opportunistic ploy for power seats under Jesus' authority. And they basically go to Jesus and they say, hey, listen, when you take over, right? Because they're, they're thinking in their minds, he's, Jesus is going to embark on some type of political, militaristic, societal takeover, right? And what they're saying is, hey, Lord, when you take over, we want to be your two top advisors, James, he, my, my brother, he wants to be your vice president, and I want to be your secretary of state. That's what they're doing. Actually, nobody likes a power grabber, right? In a community of equals, nobody likes a pretentious power grabber, and now you've got two of them, and they're brothers to make matters worse, right? It's worse than Scrooge and Marley because these guys are related, so they can work better together, uh, if they're going to do a power takeover. It's worse than that. Matthew's gospel tells us that in this incident, incident, their mother got involved. If you read Matthew's account of this situation, their mother asked Jesus the exact same question. So you can imagine the other disciples are thinking, guys, this is a low blow. You're getting your mother involved in the situation now? What are you? How unfair. Can you imagine how they must have felt? Now, look, you shouldn't be surprised. None of us should be surprised. This is how people operate, isn't it? You've seen it where you work. You've seen it in your own family. You saw it on the playground when you were a kid. And Jesus brings our attention to it. He says to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. That phrase, lord it over... It, it came from a word in Greek which meant to dominate. It meant to subjugate and to subdue another person. To make yourself lord over them. Right? And you see that from sibling rivalries. When, when you're small and, and you start whacking your little sibling over the head with a Tonka truck. It starts right there. And then it moves on to the playground in the schoolyard with playground politics of who gets to be on what team and who's bullying who around and who has the greatest influence and the most sway on the playground behind the swing set, right? Then it moves, it moves into uh, our sports teams and, and our musical competitions in high school, right? Power struggles. And then we see it in our marriages. 
when we're trying to figure, when we're trying to figure out who is going to have the most influence in this household, who is going to get their way most of the time in this marriage with our finances, with how we raise the kids. And then you see it where you work. You see it in the politics where you work. You see it in the politics of government, of institutions. You even see it in churches and in ministries. People are trying to dominate one another. Uh, People try to manipulate the circumstances and other people to benefit and serve themselves. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, what you're doing, guys, this is the way the world operates. Dominance is the way of the world, and it's specifically the way of a world that has chosen to ignore God's sovereignty. Dominance is the way of a world that chooses to ignore God's right lordship over humanity. And the result of that is you have a bunch of little, little kings and queens, little tyrants. E- even if we're well-behaved and, and we're well-dressed and, and we have advanced degrees and we're polite to one another, we're like little tyrants, secretly manipulating circumstances and people to serve ourselves in a particular situation. And Jesus is saying, guys, that's how the rest of the world operates. But he goes on to say, it's not how you're going to operate. The way of the kingdom of God The way of the kingdom of my father, the way of the kingdom which I'm about to set up is the way of service. The Christian is called to surrender the temptation to dominate and manipulate people in order to serve them. So Jesus goes on to say, see the way the world is operating, guys, James and John, the rest of you, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Right? Those two words, servant and slave, are important. Because the word servant, it literally meant a waitress or a waiter. If you're in church leadership, it's where we get the word deacon from, that word servant. Just, it means to wait on a table. It means to be somebody's servant. There's no way around the word slave either. He said, you want to be great? You want to be first? You've got to become everybody's slave. Now, don't think of American slavery. In the ancient world, a free person could become a slave. A free person could surrender his freedom and, and enslave himself to somebody else if he had no other options for work and providing for himself. The concept here of Jesus saying, if you want to be the best, you have to be You have to be everybody's slave. What he's saying is is you have to surrender your right to what you want for the sake of what other people want, which is truly the nature of service. There's um, there's an old Pink Floyd song from the dark side of the moon when they sing, forward he cried from the rear and the front rank died. And now this is the way of the world, Pink Floyd was saying in their 70s angst. They're anti-establishment angst. But they're making a good point. They're saying the way the world works is those in leadership tend to sacrifice their underlings in order to accomplish their purposes. Okay. Now, C.S. Lewis offers us a beautiful picture of the Christian way, of the biblical way, which is um, something that he gives us in, uh, what was the name of the book? The Magician's Nephew. So one of, the, one of the books in the Narnia series, uh, there's a point at the end of the book where Aslan, uh, the great lion, uh, creates Narnia. He gives birth to Narnia, and he's creating the stars and, and, and the planet. Um, 
and the trees and the oceans, and he begins to create beasts, creatures. And these creatures are intelligent. They're like us. They can talk. Um, uh, they're rational beings. And, so the, and then Aslan does something really interesting. He, he, he goes into our world, and he takes a, a blue-collar uh, uh, cockney cabbie from, from England and his wife, Frank and Helen, and he brings them to Narnia, and he says, hey, guys, you're going to be the first king and queen of Narnia. And so they object, because basically uh, Frank the cabbie uh, says, look, uh, Aslan, I'm, I'm not an educated guy. I, 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 don't, I don't think I'm, I'm fit to be king of, of any place. And Aslan begins asking him a series of questions. Oh, would, you, would you know how to plant crops and take care of the land? You know, yeah, I would. Okay, would you, would you be sure not to uh, hurt these intelligent animals and, 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 and not abuse them, uh, but treat them with respect? Sure, I can do that. Would you, um, if you have children, would you show favoritism amongst your children? Would you f- show favoritism amongst all the people? No, I wouldn't do that. Okay. And then Aslan asked him another question. And if enemies came against the land, for enemies will arise, and there was war... Would you be the first in the charge and the last in retreat? And Frank the cabbie says, basically, yes, I I would do my best. And Aslan's reply was, then you will have done all that a king should do. And that's a beautiful picture of what leadership and authority and influence are to look like by God's design in his family, in his new redeemed community. In his kingdom is that those who lead first above all are those who serve. And so the church, the entire church is a community of servants. The greatest leader is the greatest servant, but any Christian is a servant. In every relationship, in all relational dynamics, okay, pastors and, and people Um, and ministry leaders, and volunteers, and husbands, and wives, and friends, and brothers, and sisters, and parents, and children, a community of servants who give up their own rights and freedoms in order to serve the needs of one another. The Apostle Peter would never forget this incident, and this power grab by his friends James and John, right? They're, They're kind of three Three very important disciples that are very close to Jesus. The three that saw the transfiguration that we talked about last month. Peter and James and John. Imagine how Peter must have felt when the other two guys who saw Jesus transfigured before them in his eternal glory now go off at his brothers and try try and edge him out and get ahead of him. But Peter never forgot what Jesus' reply was. Peter, decades later, would say to leaders and churches, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God. And he said in this way, not domineering. That's the same word. That's the same word that Jesus uses in our story today about lording it over. Don't lord it over one another. Peter uses the same word. Not domineering over those in charge of you, but being examples to the flock. First Peter chapter five. Now, I realize something. Uh, probably have to deal with the issue of does serving one another mean we become doormats and allow everybody to walk all over us? Does serving someone mean appeasing them? 
And no, it does not. Serving another person does not mean appeasing them by allowing an injustice to take place. By allowing something to happen that you, in your right mind, in your rational mind, using wisdom and discernment, know would be a terrible thing to happen. Service is not appeasing people. Service is also not enabling people who have destructive, unhealthy habits of thinking and of living. To enable somebody is not to serve them. Serving is not spoiling your children. I would look at serving this way. Service, from a biblical perspective, the kind of service Jesus is talking about is doing for others what they cannot do for themselves. Just think about that for a second. Service is doing for other people what they cannot do for themselves. A, a, A raw, fresh, current example of this in my own life would be learning how to interact with my African-American brothers in ministry and my friends and neighbors. Because of what has been happening uh, with race and with class in our society over the last few years, um, I've had conversations uh, with uh, colleagues of mine in ministry who are black. And what I've discovered is that a simple way that I can serve them is by just asking them, would you share your story with me and just tell me what Life in America, life in our society has been like for you because I can't relate to it. Um, Have you ever noticed that you cannot get somebody else to understand you? You cannot make that happen. You cannot make another person take interest in your struggle and your story. You cannot do that for yourself. But somebody in humble service can come to you and say, listen, I want to understand you. I want to find a way to, as Atticus Finch said, walk in your shoes for a little while and understand what life is like from your perspective. And so I'm learning that a very simple way for me to serve someone that has seen the world from a different perspective than I see it is to just say in in, in kindness and friendship, would you share your story with me and help me understand these issues as you see them? Because I can't see them the way you see them. And just begin to serve another person by offering your ear and saying, I care enough about you that I actually want to hear what you have to say. I I can't do anything, but I want to listen right now. That's just a very practical way that we can serve one another. How can we do something for somebody that they cannot do for themselves? Now, you may be saying, that's not what service is. Well, look, there are all sorts of definitions of service, but I'm talking about service as Jesus understands it. Because the reason why Christians are a community of servants is because their master saw himself as a servant. Jesus went on to say, even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, let's think about it. What does it mean to be ransomed? It means somebody saves you from a predicament that you can't save yourself from. Okay, so the gospel is that Jesus ransomed. If you're a Christian, then Jesus ransomed you. He bought you back. He bought you back from the dominion of darkness and oppression and sin that you deserve. You were deserving of God's wrath. And Jesus bought you out of that situation when he hung on the cross. 
When, he, when, when, when God took your bad record and put it on the cross with Jesus, and by faith, you get Jesus' perfect record, God has ransomed you from a predicament in which you could not save yourself. And it's in that context that Jesus talks about service. So every Christian can ask himself or herself, am I, am I going to be a self-serving person or am I going to be a self-sacrificing person? And as a church, we get to ask ourselves, are we going to be a self-serving church or a self-sacrificing church? Are we going to be the type of church that is here but not really paying attention to what's going on around us in our community and the world? Are we primarily going to put our prayer energy and our finances and our planning and our passion and love into what we want and what our religious preferences and organizational preferences are? Or are we going to say we exist as a community of faith to serve the broader world? We are here so that we can serve each other. And so as a community of Christians, we can serve Westminster and Carroll County and the world beyond that. That's a question we get to ask ourselves. Now, let me ask you a question. Why is it difficult to serve others sacrificially? What do you think? You make yourself vulnerable. When you serve another person, you make yourself vulnerable. Yeah. When you serve another person, there is no reciprocity. You can't help them back. Uh, you're bringing up an interesting dynamic. Have you ever felt awkward when somebody did something for you that just blew you away and you immediately thought, I'm not, I'm not okay with this. Why were you not okay with it? Because you're thinking, how am I going to do the favor back? How am I going to repay this person? I, I don't have that kind of money. I, I'm not that nice. I'm a creep and that person's always nice. I'm never going to be that nice back to that person. That's a good point. Service is not about reciprocity. Yeah. Because once it is, it's not service anymore. It's something else. Yeah. What else? Did you say it's uncomfortable to be uncomfortable? Okay, a little different than what uh, Steve said down front. Uh, service makes us vulnerable, but service makes us uncomfortable also. Yeah, there's another hand over here. Okay, sometimes, sometimes, sir, the sometimes our act of service is not received, is not wanted, is rejected. Yeah. Yeah. So by definition, sacrifice, you're, you're setting your agenda and your plans aside. Mm. So it's difficult to resist the pull in the same direction. That's different than my plan might have had that. I know that it's not going to be one plan. 
So service characterized by sacrifice means you have to lay down your agenda. You have to put aside your own agenda. And what could that lead to? That could lead to all sorts of, that could be a train of things. I think that's a good comment uh, to, to transition with. I think one of the hardest reasons service is for us, sacrificial service, is because, frankly, friends, our priorities are out of place. Our priorities are out of sync with what our creator thinks is important and what our creator is doing. (laughs) You see the disciples, right? Jesus is talking about the fact that he's going to suffer terribly and die. And they're, they're still trying to find a way to say, how can we, how can we be like at his right and left hand, right and left side? Like they're not getting it. They're, he is not, it is not getting through to them. And the proof of it in, is in how the ten respond to the two. Verse 41 tells us, when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now, earlier in John chapter 10, the word indignant comes up again. Jesus was indignant by the way his disciples were treating children. Now, the disciples are indignant. Well, why are, are they indignant over any grand injustice? They're indignant because their position has been challenged. They're indignant because as a group of equals, two of them tried to get ahead, and nobody liked that. That's, that, that was the reason for their indignance. And you know, when you're angry about something, it shows what you think is important. And so you see that Jesus and his disciples have very different priorities. So ask yourself a question today. What are your priorities? Not just in this room, in your job, in your relationships, what you're studying, your career path for your life, your goals. What are your priorities? Is what's important to God important to you? Have you considered that there is a creator who not only formed the universe itself, but formed you? who knows you intimately, who cares very much about how you think and what you do? And have you considered that he has priorities? That he actually cares about certain things? And have you ever asked yourself, are my priorities at all in sync with the priorities of the one who created me? As Americans, we are trained from a very early age to be consumers, to see the world and our experience as a consumer would see it. What's in it for me, how can I benefit from this, is what is going on in the back of our minds as we flip through the channels, as we go to the store and figure out what pair of sneakers we're going to buy, as we look at a career path, as we consider different schools to go to, as we consider whom we want to befriend and whom we want to help. And whom we want to serve by getting into the problem deeper. What church we want to go to. What organizations we want to help. What's going on in the back is, how will this somehow help me? Not only are we trained as Americans to be consumers, we're also trained to be individuals. Meaning, the idea of you as an individual, as your own person who can do anything you want to do and anything you set your mind to, there are no bounds for you. 
Um, as a culture, we make that so important that we forget that the community is also important, that the community in God's eyes, is just as important as the individual. Neither overcomes the other, but there's got to be a balance. And in our culture, the individual, individualism, um, is paramount. So individualistic consumers um, walk around eventually thinking that we exist to serve ourselves. And if you believe that for long enough, you will start to believe that others exist to serve you. And that's what Jesus is speaking against. The prophet Isaiah really summed up the condition here. There's a spiritual condition taking place that's feeding this problem. And Isaiah said, all we like sheep, imagine God is a shepherd, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Uh, Let's just be really frank I think the problem is selfishness. I think at the end of the day, we're selfish people. I think at the end of the day, we have chosen our own way. We ignore our creator and, and we say, forget God's path. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forge my own path. And if, my, if I'm on my own path, how am I going to see what your needs are? How am I going to be aware of what you need if I am going my own way in life? That, that selfishness, is, it, it, it's, it's like enslavement. Americans think we are free and we are individuals because we can do whatever we want. And if something doesn't serve us, we'll just do something else. And if that institution doesn't serve us, we'll just quit on it and go to another institution. And if that relationship doesn't serve us, we'll just quit that relationship and go into another relationship. But it, it, we think we're free, but the Bible tells us it's like slavery because we're bound do you realize our inability to serve one another is a result of being enslaved to our own desires? We can't, we have no freedom to serve each other if we're bound like slaves to what we think we need and to what we actually want. James, uh, the apostle James, not this James, a different James, he would say decades later, you know why you fight and quarrel and murder and kill each other? It's because you're not getting what you want. You covet things that you can't get, and so you fight and you quarrel and you murder. And so what the Bible is saying is you can't ser- we can't serve one another as long as we are enslaved to our own desires and life the way we want it. It's only when we're released from that slavery that we have the freedom to serve one another. The way to freedom is the way of the cross. The Apostle Paul would talk about it. Philippians chapter 2, Paul said to to the Philippian church, I want you to get along. I want you to be unified. I want you to be like one person of one heart, of one mind, of one purpose. And he says, this is how you do it. You focus on Jesus. You focus on him and you never take your eyes off of him because this is what he did. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Paul went on to say that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him. There is no name in the universe that is greater In the name of Jesus Christ, Paul goes on to tell us. And the reason that is true 
is because Jesus first humbled himself and became a servant. Jesus was entitled. Jesus was God. He was entitled to the glory, to the honor. If Jesus wanted to, he had a right to subjugate everybody. But what Paul tells us is he didn't do that. He had the right to do it. He had the right to act like God. But he gave it up. And he acted like a servant. And he humbled himself. And he died to ransom you back from your sin. And from an eternity of spiritual separation from your creator. Why did he do it? One word, love. Love is the only legitimate power source and motivator for true sacrificial service. Paul would say to a different church, to the church in Corinth, the love of Christ controls us. Or some of your English translations say the love of Christ compels us. It, it, it overwhelms us. It moves us. It confounds us and changes us. The love of Christ controls us, Paul said. Paul said that Jesus died that those who live might not long, may no longer live for themselves, but live for him. Martin Luther King Jr. said, you don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to know Plato or Aristotle. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. picked up on Paul's theme. He said, you only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. Now bring it back to what Jesus is saying with his disciples. Jesus did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. Now, if you live in faith by that reality, now you can go and do for others what they can't do for themselves. That's the true foundation for service. That's what's going to make us as a church a self-sacrificing body for our community and our world. And that's what's going to make me and you self-sacrificing instead of self-serving individuals. This is the way toward reconciliation. This is the way toward justice. This is the way toward peace. This is how we're going to see Westminster and Carroll County transformed. This is how we're going to see this body of people transformed. Because Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. We now can go in faith, compelled by his love, to do for each other what we cannot do for ourselves. The greatest leader in the kingdom of God is the greatest servant. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise for our Savior Jesus, who, although he was God, did not grasp for authority and power and dominance and manipulation, but he gave it all up and he became a servant so that we could be with you, so that we could be reconciled with you. Father, I pray that that truth uh, would overwhelm us, would compel us uh, to serve one another and to serve our community in this world. In Christ's name, amen.